Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The programme is shrouded in secrecy. Are the right questions being asked? It really, it really makes you question whether the current approach is indeed best practice. The buck stops with the legislature. Just because something is lawful and it stands for a long time does not necessarily mean that it is above board and we should take that for granted. I'm Nicola Tallent. And you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. The Secretive Witness Protection Programme has been thrust into the spotlight with the decision of Jonathan Dowdall to turn state witness against his former neighbour and friend, Jerry the Monk Hutch. But what is the programme and when did it start? Is it a golden ticket out of trouble, or is it a poison chalice for those who sign up? Today, I'm talking with Maynooth University lecturer Aaron Hart-Hughes, who is undertaking a PhD on the Irish Witness Security Programme. He tells me about the lack of legislation around the programme, about the European recommendations being ignored by Ireland, and about the difficulties its setup poses to judges, witnesses, and the accused. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Just introduce yourself to us and tell me what it is you're looking at when it comes to the witness protection program. Well, my name is Aaron Hart Hughes. I am a higher education a PhD researcher in the area of witness protection and specifically the Irish Witness Security Programme in this jurisdiction. I'm a teacher also with the department, uh, the School of Law and Criminology in Maynooth. Maynooth, yeah. I mean, look, an interesting time to be to be studying such uh, a, a thing. Obviously, witness protection has been around quite a while and uh, I don't think the public engage with it very much. But of course, in the last week or so, we've had uh, it come up because of Jonathan Dowdall, 
Uh, and a court is told he has turned state witness against his former neighbour and friend, uh, Jerry the Monk Hutch. So when you get sort of big names attached to it, I think that's why people start showing a proper interest in it. So why don't we start with what exactly is witness protection? What is its history and where does it first come up? Well, witness protection is largely considered to be the most effective yet controversial means of tackling organised crime. Witness protection in of itself can inevitably create a conflict of interests and it's proven divisive. Witness protection involves, uh, in a general sense, the admission of a person on a security programme whereby there is the affordance of security but also the potential affordance of other support services. This could be financial to a certain degree. This could also be other support services in different jurisdictions. Some place an emphasis on psychological supports that are available there now. In respect of witness protection programmes, it's important to remember that these programmes generally attract self-admitted criminals and criminal associates. Now, it's not limited at all in that sense to these types of person or that typology, but that is the general consensus of people who are admitted on these programmes. That is internationally seen. Ireland would certainly be no exception there now. And that's really because of the basic fact that they, they're coming with information on criminals. So they clearly have a bit of a history with that criminal. They're, they're involved in criminality, essentially themselves, mostly. Exactly. And it's also, you know, the, the valuable nature of these, this programme is primarily targeted to tackle this uh, term of omerta. Omerta is, uh, is Italian for silence. And that has its origins in respect of most organised crime groups. There's this um, reluctance to engage with uh, external authorities such as the police. And that, in of itself, emphasises the need for such programmes. However, the type of persons that this attracts can be quite uh, extreme. It's referred to often as an association of opposites. You have a legitimate state body, such as a policing body, that is working in close proximity with someone who originally sought to undermine their very authority and sought to breach the rule of law, perhaps for their own personal benefit. Mm. So it's the two different worlds basically coming together to work together against one individual, basically. Effectively, yes. Um, so... You know, it starts with the mafia, doesn't it? And in in the US, the first uh, individual that we sort of are aware of that goes, becomes a protected witness is Salvatore Gravano, who of course gave evidence to the US Senate in relation to how the mafia were infiltrating boxing. And we're back there again uh, with with our Irish uh, pals in, in Dubai. But yeah, that's kind of the first one we know of. And of course, he was giving evidence against his former boss, John Gotti. Mm. Indeed, the WITSEC programme is often regarded as the paradigm programme for witness protection, insofar as it was the first programme of that symbolised modern-day witness protection. The programme itself was founded under the Organised Crime Control Act of 1970. Now... 
given the seminal nature of the program, given it was such a new invention, and given the terrible troubles that were having that the police were having with infiltrating the uh, cartels in that uh, the mafia in that instance. We then, th th there was an obvious resortment then to something that could usurp that idea of Omuerta. And that Omuerta is founded in that sort of Italian invasive mafia environment. You know, you can look at the Italy itself is a country with the Cosa Nostra, Sicilian cartel, to see the difficulties in infiltrating such persons. And this program was an enigma at the time. Mm. And understandably, there were legal issues with the program. And they needed to be ironed out. And in 1984, the uh, federal government legislated and amended these provisions. There were concerns, for example, that witness protection, this program was effectively uh, replacing crime with crime in other areas. An example would be the, the, the Apache here now. He was replaced on the program in of itself. He was moved onto the program. Mm. And what actually occurred was that this, these, these people, obviously there is a risk of recidivism. And in this instance, he was found to be liable for the committing of other offences whilst on the programming of itself. And the difficulty here lies in the fact that when there is a re-identification, is that, what extent is that known to the court that has to deal with that trial because they could accidentally try them under a, a first offence and they could acknowledge that in their final judgment and in sentencing. So witness protection in of itself, and the American example shows witness protection is not an isolated issue. Rather, it encompasses broad uh, concerns and these programmes pose moral issues. Mm. And these moral issues have to be navigated with the due care and control. And in, in 1984, when these sort of new legislation, essentially, or updated legislation was put around that programme, was there anything in relation to the kinds of people who could be signed up? Like, did they ever, okay, we have to accept that it's more than likely going to be people possibly with criminal convictions, but is there any limb, you know, I mean, did they sort of say, well, we can't have a convicted murderer going on witness protection benefiting, or we can't have somebody who has committed, you know, an offence that carries a certain amount of prison time? Obviously, subject to the, the principle that you are presumed innocent until guilty, there is, um, witness protection programmes have been uh, referred to in a slang sense to effectively equate a, a smaller fish going after a bigger fish in that sense in relation to crime, uh, in relation to organised crime. And that programme and many other witness protection programmes exemplify that. Now, after 1984, there was a consensus on evaluation of persons who are admitted to that program. The potential for a compromise in the security of the program is something that evidently needs to be considered prior to admission onto such a program because the system collapses if there is not an element of secrecy and by that very definition through security in of itself. Mm. And the 1984 Act 
addresses many of the concerns. However, it's important to note that even the WITSEC, which is considered as the paradigm protection program today, is still constantly under consideration and reform to develop on what is already quite a successful program. Yeah, and like that sounds very reasonable that it would be constantly reformed because the world has changed so much since 1984 for the the people under witness protection. We'll talk about that maybe later, but just in, even even from the idea of social media and all sorts of new risks that are out there for them, which weren't there in the 1980s. Now, obviously, that's not going to be covered under legislation, but it's just a kind of an observation on it. Um, what about Italy? When did they come in with... Was it around the same time as the 1970s? No. Italy Italy and Germany were uh, thought to be the first uh, European countries that introduced this programme. Now, importantly, it was after the WITSEC programme implementation. And that's where I come back to this idea of the paradigm. It set the standard and it was the uh, sort of benchmark, if you like, for our witness protection programs. In Italy and Germany, Italy represents an interesting proposition because Italy, for example, has been uh, crippled with organised criminal activity through the Italian mafia. I alluded to the Sicilian Cosa Nostra cartel in particular. And their target was, the, the main aim of themselves was to intimidate those who could potentially give evidence, those members of the judiciary as well, and members of the attorney generals for the state prosecution service. So the legislation itself was certainly demanded to the same extent that it was in the US within Italy. And Italy represents an example, a more closer to home example, if you like, particularly in the European Union, that witness protection programmes are relatively new and niche entities. And they need to, for that very reason, consistently be considered as to not only regards its effectiveness, but the controversy that these programmes inevitably create. Mm -hmm. And the balance that must be struck by each country is the fact that the effectiveness of the programme must be promoted and the controversial aspects of the programme must be reduced for overall it to be an effective Mm -hmm. Mm programme. And we see that with international examples. And you can see that within the UK. The UK obviously has their own witness protection programme there now. And they're constantly reforming it in the UK. Well, the witness protection programme in and of itself does not actually... Uh, have its own act. Right. It's under, it's recognised under the serious, it's referred to under the Serious Organised Crime Act of 2005. And that act... And is that when it was introduced in in the UK in 2005 or is that just... uh, No, that was the formalisation of the programme. And that was on the basis of a number of different reports, including the Home Office report undertaken by two renowned researchers in the area, uh, Nicholas Fife and James Sheptiki. So the UK had it in place... But they decided by 2005 they needed to put legislation, wrap legislation around this because it's better to have proper governance of the programme. Yes, and that again emanates from the controversy of this. You know, it's where there is secrecy, inevitably it creates suspicion. Mm. And the general uh, utopian view of witness protection programmes is that suspicion should be reduced. 
Now, naturally, there are inherent security concerns. And that is the, I suppose, the difficulty and the critical balance that must be struck between ensuring the security and viability of the program, but also ensuring the lawfulness and legitimacy of these programs. And the recommendation that these programs be legislated is not something new. In fact, the European recommendations through several reports commencing in 1997 and then going up the years in 2005, 1998, apologies, 2005, 2007, and then 2015 as well. We have seen reports whereby, now I stress it's not legislative there now, that they're not mandating that this occurs, but there is the recommendation that witness protection programs should be enforced within an adequate legal framework and that there should be legislation supporting its maintenance and operation. Mm. And the reason for that is, excuse me, the reason for that is simply because of the fact that it is in the best interests of the program to operate in a manner that reduces that conspiracy. Mm. Now, that's brings us to Ireland because we're a totally different ballgame altogether. When did the Witness Protection Programme start here? Witness Protection, the Witness Protection Programme, it's alleged, current, current, the current understanding is that it commenced in 1997 and it was, uh, it was established because of the uh, need for it in relation to the, the killing of the crime journalist Veronica Guerin. Now, Evidence does suggest, uh, anecdotal evidence suggests that the programme perhaps may have been in operation since the 1990s. However, naturally, given the lack of information around these areas, it can be difficult to prove or disprove that, especially considering the, the ad hoc nature of these program of this programme within the jurisdiction. So the catalyst, as far as we know, was the Guerin killing. Mm-hmm. And then Obviously, what came from that was the trial of four persons accused in the murder of the crime journalist Veronica Guerin, and that was largely underpinned by the evidence of Charles Bowden and several other witnesses who, for various reasons, it was deemed that they, that there were issues in relation to the, not only the credibility but also the status of those persons involved in the pro, involved in the trials in of themselves. So, what were the concerns that were raised in relation to Bowden? The concerns that were raised in relation to Bowden was Bowden was, uh, by his own admission, uh, involved in the killing of Veronica Guerin, and. To quote, to loosely paraphrase the court here now, Bowden was considered to be a deeply avaricious person who would, without hesitation, lie whilst on the record there now for his own personal benefit. And that that is quite a poignant statement. That's a bad witness. <laughs> it is a bad witness, but in this area... You know, this is the, as we alluded to at the start, this is the general typology mm-hmm. of persons that are attracted to this program. Now, it is entirely reasonable that someone not involved in crime or not a criminal associate can be involved in this protection program. However, 
given the, the serious nature of the programme, usually, and moreover, the fact that generally the valuable nature of such witnesses who have intricate knowledge of the structure of an organisation and the potential scenario around a killing, especially a gangland killing, they are inherently invaluable. And it's important to remember that our system advocates oral testimony. It, the common law adversarial trial system places it on a platform in that sense. And obviously you have expert evidence, but in organised crime cases, it's beyond coincidence that such an importance is placed on the evidence submitted by protectees on these programmes. And inevitably, a large consensus of these protectees are those of themselves criminal associates or criminals of their own volition. And Bowden was certainly no exception to that. And because they're within the heart of the organisation, they know how it works, and perhaps they were involved, some of them, in the actual crime, their, their evidence is probably really the key to a successful conviction. Yes, Um an example would be the case of DPP, the Director of Public Prosecutions or DPP versus Ward there now. And in the Ward decision, the uh, testimony of Charles Bowden formed the sole plank of evidence against him. Now, there was, uh, originally there was a confession that was, um, that there was a confession given by Ward in that instance However, that was removed on grounds that it could not be established whether that was wrought through the free will of, uh, of Ward in that instance and was not a, a consequence of psychological pressures during the interrogation process there now. Now, the impact of that being the sole plank is quite substantial because in this jurisdiction, there is the issuance of what is referred to as a corroboration warning. Mm. So the corroboration warning is usually given to a jury. However, it can be administered, self-administered by members of the special criminal court, which is usually the venue in which these cases occur, given obviously the, the necessity and the perhaps the, you know, the, the uh, risks that are potentially involved in these programmes. And in relation to Bowden and forming the sole plank, there is a potential that the courts, even the learned courts, can become overwhelmed with such evidence. And that was noted in the ward, the, the Court of Criminal Appeals decision in Ward, that it was inferred that the evidence, especially considering the nature of this evidence, this evidence can is, you know, quite fraught naturally because of the circumstances that are around it. So it creates an issue and that is why it is important to ensure that there is some potential other form that can corroborate and point to someone being guilty of an offence. And, and you mean, Aaron, that if there is in front of a jury, the jury would be reminded that in their submissions that when they went off to consider their verdict, they would be reminded that this evidence was only coming from one place. It hadn't been corroborated by anybody else and to kind of bear that in mind, whereas the judges are self-policing as such. Well, the judges are self-administering the warning there now. Yeah. And that is 
permissible as the current um, jurisprudence or the current law, uh, common law states, that that is permissible. However, when a judge discharges the jury, there is the issuance of the corroboration warning there now, whereby it's acknowledged that this person is a incentivized witness, that there is you know, some exchange here now, be it of protection services or be it more so of uh, other support services as well. Now, in respect of the SCC, the Special Criminal Court, they self-administer that warning. And that comes from the fact that they are in that position, the trier of law and the arbitrator of fact. Whereas in the, the normal ubiquitous sort of general trial uh, in the central criminal court, you have the jury who are the trier of the fact, and then the judge who's the uh, trier of law. And it's because of that separation that there are benefits and disadvantages to it. And it's important to suggest uh, to express that there are benefits to the SCC, perhaps, but there are also disadvantages. And one of them is the uh, alleged superficial somewhat nature of self-administering a corroboration warning. But I mean, the in the case of if somebody say, for example, uh, standing trial for murder, there's a witness giving evidence. The individual standing trial will have a defence team, legal team, and they will more than likely, under cross-examination of the witness, point all this stuff out. Generally, I think it's important to realise here now that these programmes involve a number of different aspects and equally they can impact a number of different aspects. We talk about the right to a fair trial. And we, that is enshrined not only under the Irish Constitution, but also under Article 6 of the European Convention of Human Rights. So the right to a fair trial is very important. Uh, that's taken for granted. However, in instances where naturally there are security concerns, you could have the invocation of the likes of public interest privilege, which is frequently alluded to in such cases. Equally, the in previous attempts for discussion of witness protection at a legislative level, the idea of national security and the fact that there is a public interest privilege has also been asserted. So you have this potential whereby you could cross-examine someone, but they might be severely limited in what they can say. Now, the security concerns may or may not necessarily be... 100% valid. But the important aspect to it here is that you then have issues of disclosure as well. The extent to which evidence is disclosed. But that would probably centre on their current circumstances rather than their past circumstances. You'd imagine that it would be not acceptable to ask somebody on the Witness Protection Programme where they were no. being protected where they were living, etc., and what their circumstances were. No, but that, that comes back to this idea of balance and how we, should, we need to ensure, rather than a really uh, obtuse argument that just, and a broad argument that in the interests of national security, we can't uh, allude to anything mm -hmm. in this respect. That is where that fine line must be walked. And there are 
instances where genuine security concerns can come about. You and is that where you're talking about we need this legal framework around it, so we need a very clear categorical uh, rules, essentially, around both the protected witness and the evidence they're giving? That comes from the nature of these programmes. We alluded to at the start that these are considered the most effective yet controversial. Mm-hmm. One of the ways that it is recognised by both European recommendations and other international recommendations is the implementation of some form of statutory formalisation of the programme. And that is based off of not only those recommendations, specifically the European recommendations, which require the adequate legal framework or request the adequate legal framework, but specifically because of the fact that there are it's very difficult to evaluate the lawfulness of something when it is not grounded in law. Mm. And that inherently poses an issue. Now, importantly, the, the wording or dicta, as we'd refer to, of the Supreme Court and other courts is quite trenchant in its criticisms of the Witness Protection Programme in this jurisdiction. And what has the Supreme Court said? Well, the Supreme Court has effectively said, and it's understandably, you know, uh, paraphrasing the Supreme Court and the judgments that that are pages long can be quite difficult. But effectively, what they have said is that it is within the remit of the state to create such programmes. Mm -hmm. However, these programmes should be grounded in some form of framework that would inevitably help the judiciary as well in deciding, for example, issues involving, you know, the incentivized nature of these programs. So... And when did the Supreme Court say that? Well, it would have been in the, the Gilligan, the, the Supreme Court review of the Gilligan case in 2005, I believe. All the way back then, when the UK were at that point putting their program into a legal framework. Yes, and to the extent to which... Uh, references made to other jurisdictions is something that perhaps more could be done in that sense. I think, in my own view, that the, the recommendations are important because ultimately, if this was brought to a, a case like other cases in other areas of law, including Donnelly versus Ireland, other cases before the European Court of Human Rights. Like Graham Dwyer and his phones. Yes. The approach, the, the, the state would have to justify why it is in the best interests of the Witness Protection Programme, contrary to these recommendations, why it should remain at the current status quo. So, in other words, because and they're European recommendations as opposed to directives. Importantly, yes. But uh, we should have a legal framework around this. We don't. Uh, the Supreme Court criticised that fact all the way back in 2005. Nothing has happened since. So, is it a situation where the programme is being run outside the law? In relation to that question... Outside of the law, it is very difficult to determine whether something is run outside of the law. And I think that the fact that you can ask that is one of the problems in relation to the programming of itself, because that stems back to the nature of the programme. 
And the fact that those questions can be asked is a prominent factor that should be considered when considering the implementation of this legislation. Now, the current understanding is that this programme operates to the extent that's been questioned by the law, by the judiciary, mm. as operating within the law. However, there have been recorded ambiguities surrounding the programme. For example, in the case of um, Ward, there now, in the case of Ward, there was the, the court, the original trial court and the Court of Criminal Appeal noted the fact that exchanges between uh, investigating members of the Gardee and, and the witnessing of themselves, Charles Bowden, were not always adequately recorded. Mm -hmm. That was criticised later in, a, in another case uh, where the witness was a guy called Joey O'Brien and it was the, the murder, I think, from recall of a guy called John Cham Champagne Carroll. There wasn't proper notes kept, I think, of, of each and every meeting. Yes. There's some criticism yeah. from the courts in that case. And that, and that is what is a crucial aspect. If you're, if you're going to run something ad hoc, naturally it is desirable and potentially legally demanded that adequate notes are kept, particularly in relation when there is limited disclosure already. The courts need to be absolutely certain that if you are sentencing someone because of the charge of murder, for example, which many of these cases do end up involving, then the court has to be satisfied beyond reasonable doubt. And that is the reason and rationale that we require, for example, corroboration. And a failure to ensure adequate note-taking, whilst that might not necessarily be immediately fatal to the case, given the accountability for human error, it's still, when you look at everything in the collective, it could be seen as an abrogation of the rights of the accused to a fair trial and a trial in due process, given they already face a difficulty in relation to challenging the testimony of a witness who knows, who has an intricate knowledge of not only the alleged crime, but also the architecture of the criminal enterprise. And that is where the danger comes in, because when you have a highly incentivized person, naturally there could be a risk that they would attempt to curry flavour with the uh program, the program directors, when they are reviewing admission to this program, to over-evaluate perhaps their valuability to such a program. And that is an inherent issue that is demands, in fact, it demands careful consideration, to quote the courts there now, careful consideration. Mm. Now, in respect of the establishment of the law, it's important to recognise that the courts are interpreters of the law. They in no way can shape or change the law other than what is limited within the common law jurisdiction, the, 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 the jurisdiction of the courts in respect of the common law. So in that sense, in my view, the buck stops with the legislature. And as I said, the legislature would have to justify 
why there is no formalization of this program. And it's interesting, if we look back to 2007, we had a, a bill, a witness protection program bill that was introduced. Now, it did ultimately fail. And the rationale for that that was given by Deputy Sean Power at the time was in reference to the lack of necessity for such legislation and the fact that it was of the view of then the Garda Commissioner that the implementation of such legislation could potentially uh, limit or constrict the programme. Now, there's two sides to every Is coin. it normal that the, uh, the Garda Commissioner would have a say in legislation? Well, the Garda Commissioner can make recommendations. Yeah. And... That is what was made. And ultimately, it was the decision of the minister, uh, it was the decision of uh, Deputy Sean Power at the time, under the guise of the Minister for Justice, that th- that is the uh, approach that should be endorsed. Now, And who would have put together that bill? The well, Department of Justice? No, 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 no. The, the bill was originally put together by Labour, I believe, the Labour Party. And the bill in 2007, obviously, it had the ability to look at the previous cases, you know, yeah. Gilligan, Ward, Brian Meehan, and... Uh, and to follow the UK right. example, because that was in 2005, so it's two years later when Labour put forward this. Exactly. And it was because of the fact that, uh, arguably it was because of the fact that they saw that there were uh, discrepancies in the programme and they sought to remedy these and ensure, further legitimise these Uh, further legitimise the programme by providing legislation. Now, the potential argument that the implementation of legislation could constrict the programme unnecessarily, I think these programmes do need a certain element of flexibility, and that is because of the security concerns there. However, the broad assertion that it could, and I emphasise the word could there now, could constrict, potentially sets a dangerous precedent because if you if, 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 if it's the case where it could constrict something, then where does the line and the buck stop in respect of, you know, policing control measures? In relation to witness protection, it has been noted in the reviews taken, uh, in the best practice uh, report that was undertaken by the European Union, uh, sorry, the European body there now, and the um, the more recent 2014-15 reports have actually said, in relation to surveys taken out, that these programmes that some countries actually require further legislation because they're struggling to get through to the courts the the lawfulness of their actions. So it's it's very much the two sides of the same... It's, it's two sides of a coin there now. But in other words, we're being left way behind here. Has anybody come back with another bill since 2007 or has it ever been raised since that this legislation is possibly required to tally with European recommendations and pretty much everywhere else it sounds in the world? The discussion of uh, witness protection uh, programmes at a legislative level is quite um, intermittent. You know, generally, a, a lot of the, as I said, the bill was, you know, no doubt linked to the notoriety that the cases, the, the publicism that the cases received in 
uh, the 2000, early 2000s. They're now following the gear and killing. However, more recently, there have been um, referrals made by the former Minister for Justice, Alan, uh, Alan Shatter, and uh, the former Minister for Justice, uh, Francis Fitzgerald. Now, Shatter... Uh, despite the frequent use of, obviously, the, citing the security concerns for a reason not to delve into the minutiae of the program, he gives us the working definition, the only general working definition we have outside of the confidential Garda Circular. And that current working definition suggests that the program is heavily reliant upon relocation. And that, I suppose, is a given considering Ireland is a small country, and yeah, that poses... you can't hide t- out too easy here. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. that would pose in of itself a difficulty. However, obviously, when you relocate someone, it is difficult to necessarily see the legalities of that relocation. Generally, when someone enters the program, and, and they, they enter, they, have, they sign an entry protocol. And this, this is not information. This is information that is available if you uh, tr- scour through the judgments. This is not unique information that I necessarily possess. Mm-hmm. But generally, there is the signing of an entry protocol. You, you would normally have the evaluation of the potential witness. This would include, obviously, to what extent they can offer the director for public prosecution to what extent they are necessary and what they can what they can offer you also have psychological evaluations however there've been reported instances uh, recorded instances particularly in the the Mooney decision where psychological evaluation was potentially uh, that there was potentially no psychological evaluation and it was left to, it was left open as to whether that was intentionally done or unintentional. And to that, I, I don't necessarily know the answer to that, and nor did uh, Justice Hogan attempt to try and answer that, because ultimately that, that is something that's not necessarily easy to answer. However, when you're dealing with entrance onto the programme, the importance of autonomy cannot be stressed. The biggest issue with these programs is it can be seen and interpreted as rewarding someone who's a self-admitted criminal. This idea that they're receiving a new life, a brand new, you know, certain sums of money. And that is something that needs to be dispelled. Now, we talked about legislation. Legislation could be one way of dispelling that if it's set out, for example, what the basic, without compromising the security of the program, the basic uh, potential entitlements that a witness could have, for example, relocation. But that in of itself is something furthermore that needs to be considered. Adequate, Adequate consideration of this needs to be given. Because I've heard many stories and I've heard of people who were paid some of money after. I've heard people who were helped, you know, relocate, helped with their health care, you know, their social security numbers, that kind of thing. Um, and perhaps helped to get jobs and things like that. But it seems to me, from the few people I have spoken to, that everyone gets something different. There's no standard or, or you know, there's no clear 
cut and many people have said they were promised something they didn't get as well, by the way. Um, there doesn't seem to be any uniformity with it. And largely that relates to the almost, you could you could state the laissez-faire nature that's taken to the programme in this jurisdiction. Again, you can tie that back to the lack of legislative framework, but also... You, you mentioned issues, uh, points such as the issuance of a new social security number. Uh, the idea that that could occur is not something that is necessarily immediately legally sound, to say the least. Now, there are, for example, uh, things that can currently be done for example, that can, you know, it's obvious and apparent that things can be done, such as the issuance of a passport in the name of, uh, in your in the Irish identity. name. Yeah. And, but the actual legality of issuance of these uh, revised um, identities in conjunction with the Witness Protection Programme, as I noted in the WITSEC example, there is an inherent danger here that these persons that their identities may not be necessarily, their new identities may not be necessarily soundly legally based. There's ambiguity mm. here. Mm. Without going into speculation, I can, I can state from my own research that there seems to be an ambiguity in relation to the potential benefits with which could be accrued from the services provided by such a programme. And I think that's where your, your, um, your input there is quite valuable, particularly with your work with you know, uh, Joey O'Callaghan there now, because there's very limited, given the restrictions that are placed to locating a witness, and you know, the, the risks involved in such the engagement with these type of persons is crucial. Now, my research is limited because of security concerns and ethical concerns that I'm limited in the engagement that I can share with these persons. However, my, the overall goal of my research is to provide an independent review that accounts for all aspects of the programme, but specifically that of the witness the protectee and the accused and what you the point that you've just raised in relation to the ambiguities around what is given and what is promised that largely stems back to the lack of legislative framework and the uh, constant and apparent lack of the documentation of certain notes in relation to what is being offered, what has been discussed with this person prior to entrance on the programme. And I think there have been reviews undertaken. Now, these reviews are purely, they're noted on behalf of Ongarda Shiokana. So no one can genuinely test these uh, reviews that are done. But we are seeing a growing importance of witness protection programs in the European uh, framework mm. and the current uh, review of uh, approaches to organised crime 2021 to 2025 has, uh, will inevitably inter alia or amongst other things, consider the legislation of witness protection programs at a European level as well. Now, the extent to which that will be successful is. Unknown. You know, there have been attempts to debate 
a sort of directive on witness protection programs for member states. And there are there is evidence of cooperation already amongst states. You can look at the Salzburg Forum there now, in which states within the European area engage in joint policing practice. And one of the important aspects to this is the uh, dealing of handling of witnesses. And that is only possible through the formalisation of that, through a, a multilateral agreement. And it is to be noted that many of those states already possess a legislated witness protection programme. There's only a handful in the European jurisdiction that do not have legislated, uh, specifically legislated witness protection Ireland programs. and who else? Ireland, off the top of my head, I believe Finland as well and France. But it's important to remember Ireland, as we noted, has an in, places a, a large amount of emphasis on the adversarial common law oral testimony mm-hmm. that's given, whereas so the likes words, of France is a civil us, law country. It's more important for us to have it than possibly than... Well, it, it, can, it can be argued in that fact, and that is something that could potentially combat the argument that, well, this, these other countries do not have a protection programme. And would you be surprised if I told you that Joey O'Callaghan would claim he was never... Uh, given any legal advice, independent legal advice, before he signed on to the programme at 19 years of age? Off of the basis of the current, uh, you know, off of the basis of the current area and the ambiguities surrounding the programme, it would not be necessarily unsurprising. However, obviously, I cannot, with any degree of certainty, state whether that is the case or not. But again, acknowledging the ambiguities around the area, and recorded instances whereby, you know, Garda conduct has been found to be lacking in those instances by the courts, then I don't think that the point that you've made can be entirely ruled out either. And that's important to know. And you see, of course, it's very difficult to, you know, to to get any information, obviously. Anytime a journalist goes looking for information on the Witness Protection Programme, they're told for state security reasons, no information can be given. We as taxpayers don't know where really or how much money. There's figures been put out which are very little, for, for you know, from what I'm seeing, there very little money being spent. But we have no access to what exactly that money refers to, what part of the programme or if it's all of the programme. You know what I mean? We're getting absolutely no information whatsoever. Are we alone and unique in that? Well, internationally speaking, there has always been, but because of the security concern there now, there has always been a reluctance to publish certain uh, information in relation to the programming of itself. Now, I do know that the uh, legislature can, has published sums of money that are generally around the million mark. However, that is over a year, uh, and that is, uh, I think, that has decreased quite a substantial sum uh, more recently. Now, the rationale for that, I cannot currently explain, admittedly. But this idea of maintaining the secrecy of the programme cannot be used in this broad or vague sense, as we said, to justify the potential withholding of non-compromising information. And I think if we go back to the example of WITSEC, WITSEC publishes 
its expenditure annually. If you go on to, if you make a broad general Google search, you can actually find a very detailed framework of the current program. And the 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 framework that's offered there is very informative mm. and something which is not so, so, something we see here quite frequently. Now, what does that do? Well, that naturally improves public confidence. Yeah. The people can see what you mentioned money there now. People can see, you know, what the kind of their money is indirectly going towards. And the fact that there is this openness and transparency subject to the security concerns, and it's important to remember that it's recorded that no witness has died on the American WITSEC program when they have followed the procedures of WITSEC. So the fact that they can ensure that, as well as providing an adequate legal framework that allows the public to engage with the program, that promotes the legitimacy of the program as a whole. And that inevitably improves the uh, judiciable nature of the program, that the judges can, to a certain degree, be assured that this is all above board and it's statutory founded. So a judge literally just has to quote the law in that sense and just apply it to the facts of that case. So the difficulties... Everything, in my view, stems back to this lack of legislation. And the the statements that are made, you know, in relation to allegations that are suggested as well, the current structurization of the program is one that, whilst it cannot support those arguments immediately, you cannot disprove those arguments either. And that is that is the... And the complete reason as to why we are sitting here today. And it's the fact that this the program is shrouded in secrecy. Some of that secrecy is necessitated because of security reasons. However, the lack of formalized legislation is something we've discussed and we've we've questioned as to why Ireland should go against the European recommendations. What are the particular reasons as to why that should not be the case. And broad assertions such as it's unnecessary or that it could potentially compromise or curtail the operation of the program are substantially unfounded. And we can, through the use of uh, comparative examples to the US, to the UK, Canada, Australia, we can see that they are able to improve they are able to possess an adequate legal framework that does not compromise the integrity of the program. So it really, it really makes you question as to, you know, whether the current approach is indeed best practice. And as we've said, witness protection as a whole, uh, these programs, whilst they focus in court on issues of the right to a fair trial, there could be other issues here. Now, Article 12 of the European Convention of Human Rights talks to uh, talks about access to an effective remedy. Well, access to an effective remedy can be difficult when you've no law to necessarily uh, go off and equally the stringent security that's around these programs and the ambiguities surrounding their oper internal operation can create 
a difficulty in trying to get an effective remedy from the courts. I believe we saw, to a certain degree, we saw that in the Mooney case. However, Mooney also, there were particular facts of that case, which the court acknowledged meant that, you know, a reliance that he was unfairly removed from the program was not something that could be supported because of the evidence in that case. And so we're still left with that question. We've seen examples throughout the the the, the history of Ireland whereby just because something is current practice does not necessarily mean that it's lawful or constitutional. An example of that would be uh, the Offences Against the State Act and its amendments it purported to originally the um, the the permission of the uh, high high ranking members of on Garda to issue self serving warrants. Now, in the Dimash case, uh, the, in that case in of itself, it was found that that was unlawful. That the power to issue a warrant should be vested within and is, it should be exclusively vested within the Irish judiciary. So that goes to show you that just because something is lawful and it stands for a long time does not necessarily mean that it is above board and we should take that for granted. Mm. You know, the important aspect to consider there is are the right questions being asked? And that is, you know, the job of a good a barrister or legal counsel in general, are the right questions are, are the right questions being asked? Are the most difficult questions being asked? Now, there is no right or wrong necessarily. You know, arguments that have been made, nor is it in my authority to say whether there's a right or wrong question being asked. But importantly, if we were to consider particularities in relation to the Witness Protection Programme, you could see a justifiable argument when you look at everything overall that there could be an argument for review and particularly acknowledging the fact that the European recommendations as well because it's up to the state then to justify why it deviates from such recommendations. Well, perhaps, Aaron, your work and your study, your uh, current work, which when will it be completed? Maybe that will be the driving force to, you know, start this debate, get a review underway and perhaps finally legislate for this programme? Well, my research in of itself is bound, obviously, by um, the constraints of researching such a programme. I'm also bound by the ethical considerations as well. My my hope is to produce this uh, thesis that is based off of, of critical evaluation of the Witness Security Programme here in this jurisdiction by um, the completion of my studies in uh, 20, uh, January 2025. So I would hope to have that drafted by then. It would, it's something, it's still a work in progress. And obviously, I wish to account for everyone's uh, viewpoints there now. I welcome engagement from you know, the the state in particular there now, considering there is an inherent benefit to that for my research. Ultimately, I suppose the aim of my research is to help the programme in of itself to become the best that it can, that it can be an effective, uh, it can be an effective tool for combating serious organised crime, but importantly, that it provides the necessary safeguards for protectees 
and uh, witnesses who wish to come forward. And ultimately, that is something that will incentivize more persons to participate and contribute and collaborate with justice. Aaron Howard Hughes, thank you very much. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com, produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.